Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu, driving the show with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Tami Kuza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. UN Rights Chief calls for dialogue to end crisis in Egypt. Zimbabwe Constitutional Court to hear MDC's election petition. And South Africa marks its first anniversary of the Marikana massacre. In economics, African ports are scaling up their operations. And in sports news, Mexico thrash Ivory Coast in a friendly soccer match. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Egypt is bracing itself for more bloodshed on what has been called Black Friday with the Muslim Brotherhood calling for a march of anger after today's prayers and the country's security forces warning they will turn their guns on anybody who attacks state institutions or the army and police. The death toll stands at over 600 with over 3,000 wounded. Mal Frickberg reports. The UN Security Council held an emergency session on Thursday and called on both the Egyptian government and the Muslim Brotherhood to exercise maximum restraint and end the violence spreading across the country. Turkey recalled its ambassador for consultations and Egypt in turn recalled its ambassador from Ankara. France, Britain, Germany and Italy summoned Egyptian envoys to protest the crackdown on Islamist protesters. European Union foreign ministers are to confer next week. Scandinavian countries will evacuate all of their citizens by Monday. Meanwhile, thousands of people in Libya, Pakistan and Yemen have staged rallies to condemn Egyptian police violent crackdown on supporters of ousted President Mohamed Morsi. Libyan protesters held a demonstration in front of the Egyptian embassy in the capital, Tripoli. Similar protests took place outside the Egyptian consulate in Libya's eastern city of Benghazi. In Pakistan, thousands of Pakistanis took to the streets in the southern port city of Karachi and the northwestern city of Peshawar, while hundreds of students coupled with members of various NGOs gathered outside Egypt's interest section in Tehran, chanting slogans in condemnation of Egyptian police brutality against civilians. Neither the South African government nor the ruling ANC will have representatives speaking at the commemoration of the Marikana shootings in the northwest province today. 34 people were killed and 78 others were wounded when police fired live ammunition at striking miners today a year ago. Large numbers of family members and comrades of the fallen miners are expected to attend the first anniversary of the shootings. The ANC in the Northwest Province has joined the National Union of Mine Workers in boycotting the event, saying it does not recognize the Marokana support group that organized the event. The party says it finds it immoral and unacceptable that a traumatic incident has been turned into a political playground by some parties. It says it's astonished that mining company Lundman has granted what it calls an illegitimate structure permission to hold the event. The company is providing logistical support. Riyadh Desai of the Marokana Massacre Anniversary Organizing Committee explains who will feature at the event. 
Joseph Mutunjua. Interspersed with that will be uh, messages of support from a number of political formations. Um, I'm told Julius Malema will be with us. And the, you know, the other usual suspects, Akhan, UDM, Holomisa, African... Uh, no, they haven't approached us, so uh, the program's finalised now. We're expecting a few government ministers here, but again, they haven't approached us to be on the program, so we're happy about that because, you know, the government were very intricately involved in the shootings. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has congratulated the authorities and people of Mali for the successful conduct of presidential elections, provisional results of which were announced yesterday. As Mali awaits confirmation of the results, Ban has congratulated Ibrahim Boubacar Keita on his election as president. The Secretary-General also acknowledged the acceptance of the outcome by second-place candidate Somalia Sassay and saluted his commitment to democratic principles. Benin's President Thomas Boniyayi is facing growing opposition and has fired his entire cabinet in the latest sign of Andres. For five consecutive Wednesdays, hundreds of people in the capital have donned bright red T-shirts, caps and headbands to signal their solidarity with the Red Wednesday movement, which accuses Yayi of seeking to remove term limits set by the Constitution. Analysts say a deepening sense of uncertainty risks undermining Benin's reputation as a stable democracy in a turbulent corner of the world. That's the news for this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Zimbabwe's opposition party leader Morgan Changarai's court battle to nullify presidential elections has been set for the weekend. The constitutional court will sit to determine whether the grounds presented by Changarai are enough to order fresh elections. Mugabe beat Changarai to presidential seat by a million votes in a poll his opponent has charged as being fraught with irregularities. The court hearing will coincide with Changarai's lobby for regional leaders' weekend summit to reject the election results. Shingai Nyoka has more. It's an all-out offensive launched on both legal and diplomatic fronts. Movement for Democratic Change leader Morgan Changirai in a last stand to reverse his crushing electoral defeat. But he could face Saturday's constitutional court without key documents. A high court has reserved judgment on his application to force the electoral body to release crucial material to buttress his challenge. He'd wanted materials, including the voters' roll, used at all the nine and a half thousand polling stations and a register of those who cast their votes in the early election. Changirai's lawyer, Louis Uriri. We need access to those materials to be able to sustain our um, uh, submission that there was an undue return. We need um, those materials to demonstrate beyond doubt that the election um, was improperly uh, conducted, to demonstrate that the will of the people is not reflected in that election. And there must be a reason why they do not want to make provision of those materials. And that reason is that they are definitely, definitely, definitely in our submissions, ghosts in those boxes and sealed materials that they do not want us to access. 
And on the diplomatic front, Changirai will try to isolate Mugabe within the region. Analysts say his party's dossier on the alleged manipulation of the vote could compel SADC to relook at its initial positive review of the elections. Analyst Ibo Mandaza. And in reality, the GPA process begun in 2008 has not been completed. It can, it can only be completed only at when there has been a successful election, a legitimate election, an undisputed election. And, and therefore it's naive for, for the SADC to try and claim that the matter is over. They are saddled with it, regrettably. The PF party believes the summit will be its last hurdle in a five-year battle for legitimacy. The regional body refused to recognize the 2008 election win marred by violence. ZANU-PF spokesman Rugare Gumbo. We, we expect uh, the summit to mainly formalize what has been said and uh, to congratulate uh, His Excellency for a resounding victory in Zimbabwe. My understanding was that they were going to be focusing on the DRC and uh, also on Madagascar. Those are the key issues and the security in the region and in Africa in general. That's what I understood uh, the message to be. But I don't think there is any basis of discussing the, uh, the environment in Zimbabwe because this environment is, is uh, peaceful, is calm, is tranquil, and uh, so there is really no basis for discussing Zimbabwe. SADC and the African Union have cautiously endorsed last month's election. A full report is expected to be tabled within a month, but it still appears that an election that should have ended the regional mediation and set Zimbabwe on the path to stability for now appears to be anything but. Shingai Nyoka, Harare, Zimbabwe. In a firm rebuke to Egypt's administration, the United States has cancelled a joint biannual military exercise with Egypt's military that was due to take place next month. This comes after at least 500 people were killed and scores more injured in clashes when security forces forcibly removed people protesting the ouster of former President Mohamed Morsi last month. From the Union buildings in Pretoria to the United Nations in New York, this week's events in Egypt have been roundly condemned. Show and Bryce Peace reports. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Navi Pillay weighed in calling on all sides to step back from the brink of disaster. UN spokesperson Eduardo Del Bui elaborated on her statement. She urged the Egyptian authorities and security forces to act with the utmost restraint. She also called for an independent, impartial, effective and credible investigation of the conduct of the security forces. Ms. Pillay added that reports of attacks on public buildings and religious sites by opponents of the government are also extremely worrying, and those responsible for such criminal acts should be brought to justice. U.S. President Barack Obama stepped away from his annual vacation in Martha's Vineyard to deplore the violence. As a result, we notified the Egyptian government that we are cancelling our biannual joint military exercise, which was scheduled for next month. Going forward, I've asked my national security team to assess the implications of the actions taken by the interim government and further steps that we may take as necessary with respect to the U.S.-Egyptian relationship. He called for the state of emergency to be lifted and a process of national reconciliation to begin. He also said the United States is not taking sides. We've been blamed by supporters of Morsi. We've been blamed 
by the other side as if we are supporters of Morsi. That kind of approach will do nothing to help Egyptians achieve the future that they deserve. We want Egypt to succeed. We want a peaceful, democratic, prosperous Egypt. That's our interest. But to achieve that, the Egyptians are going to have to do the work. And while we watch events unfold in Egypt, no word from either the United Nations or the United States government on whether they in fact deem the overthrow of Mohamed Morsi a coup or not. They only talk about the future and not the past. For the Obama administration, labeling it a coup would trigger an immediate suspension of military aid to Egypt and with that lose the United States the latitude it still enjoys in matters of regional importance, including Israel's security. That report by Sharon Bryce Peace. An emergency session of the UN Security Council has failed to produce a consensus statement on the violence in Egypt that has now seen the death toll surpass 600. Council members were summoned to an emergency session after the UK, France and Australia called for the Security Council to formally take up the matter. The president of the council currently held by Argentina's ambassador did speak in her national capacity in reiterating her country's condemnation of the coup last month and the subsequent violence that escalated earlier this week. Sharon Bricepiece reports. Members were briefed in closed-door session by the UN's Deputy Secretary-General Jan Eliasson, who left it to counsel to take a position on recent developments. Ambassador Marcia Perceval of Argentina is council president for August. The members, first of all, expressed their sympathy to the victims and regretted the loss of lives. The view of council members is that it's important to, it, to end violence in Egypt, that the parties exercise maximum restraint, and there was a common desire on the need to stop violence and to advance national reconciliation. But rather than leave it there, the council president spoke in her capacity as Argentinian ambassador and said what council as a collective was unable to. My government, the 3rd July, condemns the coup d'etat that took place uh, on Egypt. Today, the government of Argentina condemns the brutal repression against popular demonstrations that filled the streets of the main cities of Egypt. These demonstrations came to a sad end yesterday, with the result of numerous fatal casualties and wounded victims. The government of Argentina calls human authorities of this country for the total and immediate cease of the spiral of violence unleashed in recent days against citizens. The UN Secretariat and both the United States and the European Union, who both have permanent representation in council, have refused to label the presidential overthrow in Egypt a coup. Egypt's government has warned protesters that police have been authorized to use lethal force against actors of terror or sabotage as government buildings and churches became targets amidst the security crackdown. Sherman Bricebees at the United Nations, New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
Miners at Lonman Mine in South Africa's northwest province are saddened that they mark the first anniversary of the Marikana killings with their battle for $1,250 pay still not realized. Today, thousands of miners are expected to attend the first commemoration of the killing of 34 miners and injury of 78 others at the base of the Kopi next to the mine by police. The memorial today was supposed to mark the beginning of reconciliation, but the absence of ruling ANC-aligned National Union of Mine Workers leaves a question mark on building of relations. Matazi Gallens has more. What I remember is that uh, we just heard the, 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 the sound, uh, an unusual sound. You must understand that we are living uh, in the mine area, so we we are used on sounds like uh, when they blast underground you but that sound on that day was different that sound was sounds of guns uh, that was refusing to stop a sound urged in memory and in its wake a trail of broken families they are desperately searching for justice as while comrades turning against one another leaving a community divided and a trail of deaths pastor sakumzi kukumana has been living in marikana for seven years uh, the first year uh, when i arrived here this community was a peaceful community and then there was hope because there was a mine uh, so each and everybody was like were many on my first day that were new here uh, because of uh, there is a potential of people getting jobs so they were flooding and then coming in and then um, there was hope there was there was that sense that you could feel that these people are positive that hope was dashed last year when miners went on strike demanding a salary increase from four thousand to 12,000 rand a month. In days leading to August 16th, 10 people, including policemen and security guards, were brutally murdered. Then things came to a head. When police started firing bullets, it was like my brain stopped working. The gunshots were ringing non-stop. I went down, my ears were blocked. It was a lot of guns. That is what has affected me. And affected Bangalore still cannot believe he survived. Lifting his shirt, he reveals the numerous scars from rubber bullets and gunshots. He says at the time they felt trapped as police had erected barbed wire around the copy. Every time I watch it on TV, I say I survived. My brothers died. Because we are not going to fight the police, we are just trying to go to our homes. Pastor Sakumzi Kakimana says Marikana has been at war since. The community is yet to heal, remains angry, and its future uncertain. Not only miners, but pastors and other people have fallen victim. He says the area needs a peace force. He warns of a new danger. Community taking the law into their own hands with two teenagers already killed. Community now is starting to to to, to kill one of the their owns because there is no arrest that are happening. There is no uh, there is nothing that is happening with 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 persecuting those that um a perpetrators of violence in the community. Would you say it's a community at war? I'm telling you, 
Yeah, it's a committee at war now. Because now they're going to get tired with what is happening. And then once the committee is tired, uh, you know, so violence will escalate. While they grapple the continuing violence, justice also remains elusive. The Falam Commission, tasked with investigating the violence, has been dogged by delays denting its credibility. For miners like Bangele, their hope on the institution is fading. Hey, hey, Commission issue is difficult for me. Government is taking sides. Our lawyers took us out of jail, but now they are not getting paid. Why But the miners are also asking themselves hard questions. Olamin Zoza witnessed the killings and was arrested and released with the other 269 miners. Uh, we are not happy with everything that has happened with the strike. We are still not free because you lost our brothers. We are asking ourselves, we are still working, but they have died. We haven't even achieved what we are fighting for and what they died for. We're asking ourselves whether is the truth and honesty there amongst us. Kolani is desperate for closure, and he thinks that can only come if the families of those murdered can be helped to put food on the table. We'll only be happy if we can get what we fought for, even the families, if they can be compensated by government and loanmen. Maybe if they have young people who can work, we would appreciate it. If the company hires them or those who are too old, maybe they can help them to put food on the table. Miners are wondering if it was all worth it as they continue to battle for higher wages. Justice is yet to be delivered and their community remains at war. Mahlatze Gallens, Marikana, Northwest. A number of people in South Africa's Eastern Cape province are still sad and suffering the loss of loved ones who were living and working in Marikana. The majority of the people who were killed were striking mine workers at Lonmin. The massacre led to the formation of the Falam Commission investigating the deaths last year. Five of the top witnesses who were who were to take the stand at the commission, including a Sangoma, have since been killed as well. Our reporter Ngulule Gonyembezi visited some of the grieving families and felt this report. Signs of pain and suffering characterized the facial expressions of the relatives of those who lost their lives in the Marikana massacre a year ago. They have been leaving Tata this week on their way to Rosenberg for the commemoration Shortly after the massacre, it was one funeral service after one another in the Pondoland. Most of the families in the Eastern Cape are now living in poverty, having lost their breadwinners. Although they are still traumatized by what happened to their loved ones, some agreed to talk to us. Our hearts are still bleeding about what happened. We are now suffering because our breadwinners were killed in this brutal fashion. Yes, we are looking forward to getting Marikana, but I must say this, that uh, every time we are called in Marikana, the memories of what happened come back. It is not well at all. 
This young widow has three children and she says none of them is at school because she cannot afford to pay for their transport to school. She says her husband was the only breadwinner and his death has had a detrimental impact on the socio-economic activities of the family. Life is very tough now that uh, my husband is no more because there are a number of things that should have been solved by my husband if she was still alive. But we still have that hope that uh, maybe this commission will reveal the truth of what happened. My children have just quit schooling because of the financial constraints. Eastern Cape Condoleezza Secretary Tony Lindevu was one of the traditional leaders who visited Lonmin after the tragedy says they are very disappointed about unfulfilled promises by Lonmin management. Chief Ndevu says they were promised that the families of the victims will be taken care of in terms of their welfare. From the side of us as Condoleezza and as traditional leaders, it's actually a kind of an arrangement which, which does not actually make us happy because you know, the promise that was made by Lonmin when we were there as Condoleezza in, in intervening in the situation, it was made very clear by Lonmin that they will, you know, they will look into the welfare of those people that are affected by, by the incident. The Social Development Department in the Eastern Cape says most of the families have become a burden for the department. Tobani Maswan is a provincial spokesperson. It is frustrating the government and frustrating the province as, as i've indicated in the sense that firstly there was no budget for that but we have to 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 make emergency intervention in relation to that and secondly you you find out that there are long-term interventions that we're supposed to make and if there is, can be another assistant that is coming somewhere it was going to relieve them the burden on, on, on the province or these challenges or frustrated challenges that are facing us at the present moment. It's not clear at this stage how long these families and all parties involved will have to wait for the outcome of the Falam Commission of inquiring into the circumstances of the tragedy. MEC for Safety and Security in South Africa's Limpopo province, Joyce Mashamba, has urged communities to be tolerant of foreign nationals living among them. She was addressing representatives of various community structures attending the Provincial African Peer Review Mechanism on Xenophobia at the border town of Musina. The summit is aimed at educating members of the public not to engage in xenophobic attacks. The summit coincides with the recent killing of an Ethiopian foreign national at Musina and the looting of shops belonging to foreigners near Toyando. Our reporter, Witness Diva, reports. Representatives of the Department of Home Affairs and the International Organization for Migration and Ordinary Community Members were among the delegates who attended the summit. MEC for Education, Dikeledi Magadzi, MEC responsible for safety, security and liaison in the province, Joyce Mashamba, and Vembe District Mayor Chitereke Matibe and local Mayor Carol Piri officiated the summit. MEC Mashamba reminded South Africans that many African countries had embraced South African freedom fighters during the struggle against apartheid. MEC Joyce Mashamba has condemned the looting of shops belonging to foreign nationals at Chisauru outside Toyando during a community protest on Monday. Earlier this week in Musina, a 32-year-old foreign national was shot and killed during an armed robbery at his business. 
Mashamba says people who attack foreign nationals would be dealt with severely. Instead of our people venting their anger on the foreign nationals, they must learn from them how they do their businesses, how they become a flourishing community. Instead of doing what they've done, a 32-year-old Ethiopian national who was murdered, those that are responsible should be punished accordingly. They must be given heavy sentences. Musina is regarded as one of the gateways to other southern African countries and those further north. Despite a number of foreign nationals from Zimbabwe and other areas coming into the country through the Bid Bridge border post in Musina, no xenophobic attacks have been reported in the area. Joyce Sikhovela is one of the community members who attended the summit. She says the summit will go a long way towards helping other communities to embrace foreign nationals. I think on my view on these programs, from today I think the Premier have done the good job for us, the community of Messina, so that we can communicate with foreigners and we can also make peace with foreigners. We want them to live with foreigners because even us, we see that our economy is growing better because of the foreigners, because they are coming in our shops to buy so that our economy can grow better. Even them, the other towns, they must accept them. Head of International Organization on Migration, Mohammed Hassan, says they have partnered with government to start a network of peacemakers in six provinces, including Limpopo. He says this is aimed at integrating foreign nationals into communities. Um, with that project, what we have done was we would like to create communities of diversity and peace. We don't talk about xenophobia, but we talk about integration. So we want to create or we want to contribute to the creation or strengthen communities of diversity and peace. So in each locality, you would have like 20 peace monitors mm-hmm. at what level? So that what we're trying to do is like to canvas that throughout the country so that we will have a way that the different communities can come and interact and overcome whatever challenges that they might have mm-hmm. so that we can preempt you know, this unnecessary targeting of the weakest of the week, who might be, you know, the foreign nationals. That was Mohammed Hassan from the International Organization for Migration in Musina, ending that report by Witness Diva. We now cross over to Anne Musa for the headlines. Good morning. The UN Security Council calls for an end to violence in Egypt following the killing and wounding of hundreds of people. Today marks a year since clashes between South African police and miners left 34 miners dead at Marikana in the northwest province. And the Indian Navy retrieves the first two bodies of 18 crew who are feared dead on a submarine that exploded and sank earlier this week. Details and more at the top of the hour. Diabetes, a medical condition where the body fails to utilize the ingested sugar, also known as glucose, was highlighted at the ongoing Non-Communicable Diseases Conference in Johannesburg. The conference aims to explore the changing patterns of the diseases in developing and developed countries. According to the World Health Organization, non-communicable diseases account for about 60% of all deaths 
killing more than 36 million people each year. The event also addresses the influence of poverty on diseases. For more on this, here's Professor Jean-Claude Mbanya, Head of Medicine at Endocrinology at the University of Yaoundé in Cameroon. And when you talk about diabetes, you mean that somebody has an excess blood sugar. If you want to enter a door, you need a key. And when you put the key, you can open the door. When you eat, the food that you eat will transform into micro food. And it has to penetrate inside your cell, inside your body, to give you energy to talk, to work. And for that food to enter your system, you need what we call insulin. Mm. So the role of insulin is, is to let the food that you've eaten penetrate into your cell. And then that will produce energy. Some people, especially young children, do not produce the right type of insulin because one, there might have been destruction of the cells that secrete insulin from the pancreas. With that, when they eat, there is accumulation of glucose, of sugar inside the blood because that sugar cannot penetrate into the cell. We call that type 1 diabetes. It occurs mostly in children, but it can occur at all ages. The second type of diabetes is that you are producing the key, the insulin. But as you put the key, when you want to open the door, there is a resistance from the inside the cell, mm-hmm. resistance to the action of insulin. Maybe sometimes with people who are obese and grossly obese can cause diabetes. So it is not because the insulin is not present. It is because of insulin resistance, and that is called type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when ladies get pregnant, mm-hmm. they secrete so many hormones and these hormones will make them to have resistance to the action of insulin. Mm. So during the third trimester, second trimester of pregnancy, they would have sugar in their urine, which means that they have gestational diabetes. With gestational diabetes, after pregnancy, it can disappear, but in some women, it comes back as type 2 diabetes. Now take us through, just in a nutshell, through your presentation of realistic targets. Uh, for the care of people with diabetes in sub-Saharan Africa? I think one of the fundamental things with in diabetes is that we have the evidence. If you keep your blood sugar, your blood pressure, your lipids at a certain level, you will not develop complications. My task was, do the targets which are in the Western countries, are they applicable to Africa? Knowing that in sub-Saharan Africa, we have a resource-limiting society where people don't do the test, where you have to pay for health care. My debate was, we have the evidence that these things work. And one of the evidence we have is that if you have diabetes, we have a test we do, we call it A1C. It tells us over the past six to eight weeks how your blood sugar has been controlled. Reliable studies have shown that by 1% decrease of every time you decrease that glycosylated hemoglobin by 1%, you have a decrease from 10 to 28 percent of complications of diabetes. If you are on 10, because the normal is 6, 6.5, if you decrease from 8 to 7, you also have that benefit. The body has what we call metabolic memory. It has memory. When I start decreasing, my brains get used to it. So once you start decreasing it, your body will take over and start doing it. So my message was, you don't have to reach the targets of 7%, which is the global target. You can bring the target as near to 7% as much as possible, taking into consideration the patient's age, 
the duration of diabetes, whether they have other diseases associated with diabetes. That was Professor Jean-Claude Mbanya from the University of Yaoundé in Cameroon talking to Khumuzo Mopulani. A new publication by International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, has set a precedent for deliberately moving plants and animals for conservation purposes around the world. Based on 30 years of experience and pioneering reintroductions, such as the Arabian oryx in Omen, the golden lion tamarind in Brazil, and the red wolf in the U.S., and many, many other plants and animals. Subsequently, this publication is an essential guide to the contentious but increasingly necessary action of translocating species. Pritpal Surai, coordinator of the IUCN Reintroduction Specialist Group, tells us more. Yeah, these are guidelines that were developed by IUCN, you know, to assist people who are involved in, you know, reintroduction and translocation projects, you know, involving animals. Um, these are a series of guidelines. IUCN had a position statement on translocations in 1987, and then we developed IUCN guidelines for reintroductions in 1995, and now these are the most recent updates. Because a lot of you know, a lot of new things have changed. Things like climate change has looked into many new issues. So that's why these guidelines were issued. It's a more recent document. How is this saving of species by translocation going to be carried out? These are guidelines. You know, there's a lot of projects. I mean, people move. You know, like reintroductions. People move animals and plants in areas where they've gone extinct. You know, you bring back populations. I mean, examples like the Arabian oryx in Oman, which had you know become totally extinct. You know, just reintroduced. I mean, there's projects from all over the world. Uh, even in South Africa, there's a lot of projects I'm aware of. And animals are put back into places from where they've disappeared. So these are guidelines to help the practitioners. You know how to develop their projects. You know how to plan them and to do the implementation. So these actually will assist people doing such type of work. The species that are being reintroduced in areas where they disappeared, how do they adapt to the particular environment? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is what these guidelines would cover. Normally, when doing reintroductions, you will tend to source animals like you do translocation. So animals from an existing wild population, you know, moving them to an area where they didn't occur. In many cases, you have to use uh, captive bred animals, animals that have been bred in zoos. But those always have their own unique problems because some of these animals, they might have lost the skills, you know, how to survive in the wild. So many times you have to, you know, choose the fit animals, uh, you know, have a stage where, you know, you, you don't just re- do a hard release, you put them back slowly into the wild. Or maybe you would do a captive breeding operation, you know, at the site and then let the next generation out. So, so it's quite technical. Now looking at a plant species, for instance, as it is that uh, with regards to a lot of development in the developing nations taking place, how does that uh, impact yeah. on the plant species? Yes, I mean, you're perfectly right. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. Uh, I mean, a lot of rare plants, you know, will be affected by development and things. That's why you have, you know, things like seed banks or, you know, herbariums where it's similar to zoos for animals or botanical gardens where you can actually maintain species, you know, for some point of time until you can find a suitable area and then you can replant them out. You know, same as animals, we have zoos, you know, you do the same with plants, with botanical gardens and seed banks. It has been observed that uh, some of the translocations have been taking place not uh, for the sake of saving the species, because now if you find uh, that uh, the species is only endemic in that particular area and then because there has to be some development taking place in that area, the species right. has to be moved to other areas. What's your comment on that? 
Yeah, those actually, that's the topic you're covering. You know, it's putting maybe animals outside their range. And, you know, this is the issue with invasive species. You have to be very careful with that. It's putting things, you know, where they don't belong. Because there are many cases, you know, examples worldwide where things have been moved and then they become a serious pest or they can become invasive and, you know, take over the environment. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you should move species within their historic range and, and not outside their range. So how do we guard against uh, such activities? Well, if these guidelines were followed properly, uh, it, it does cover all those issues. I mean, you know, encouraging people to, you know, look at the historic range and everything. So that's why these guidelines have been developed. I mean, if they were followed properly, you would find, you know, much, you know, projects that did those kind of things. Does it also occur with species which are found in uh, desert areas and then uh, moved in areas where it's uh, not uh, the very same ecosystem? Yes, I mean, uh, if that happens, of course, I mean, you, you know, the animals will find it hard to survive once you move them out of their range. So, I mean, you know, in many cases, you know, if they're moving something, it's, it's got to be, you know, within the historic range where you knew they occurred previously and, you know, not move them, you know, across different types of habitats. Priptal Surai, coordinator of the IUCN Reintroduction Specialist Group, on the line from Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, talking to Wandile Khalipa. South Africa's Archbishop Emeritus and Nobel Laureate Desmond Tutu told global business people that they can only stay rich if they can alleviate poverty in the world. Tutu was addressing a forum of international executives where he was granted an international award by Frost and Sullivan. The Archbishop also reminded the global business world about the dark days of apartheid and shared a few anecdotes which kept the crowd laughing. Mercedes Percent reports. Frost and Sullivan is an international growth consulting company which brings together businesses to successfully address their growth challenges. The Archbishop told the global community of executives who attended the forum how a world free of poverty could even benefit their businesses. Can you imagine what our world would be like where poverty had been made history? Just imagine how prosperous all of us would be in vibrant markets because you had people who could afford it. <laughs> you want to be rich, then eradicate poverty. Then you won't have 9-11. I'm saying that with a, a very deep, deep sympathy. I mean, you and you Americans have never, I don't think, experienced the emotion that the world had for you. Everybody, everywhere virtually, people felt for you. And they were outraged by what had happened. And then you spoiled it. I was amongst those who tried. I called the White House. Hello. <laughs> and they said, no, the president was not available. Tutu told the Forum of International Business People that the powerful nations are spending money on what he calls instruments of death destruction, while some money can be redirected to help the needy. We have the capacity to feed every single human being on earth. We have. But what do we do? We spend trillions on instruments of death and destruction when a fraction, a fraction of that budget would ensure that all children in God's world had clean water to drink. Children die because they drink contaminated water. Children die because they can't afford cheap vaccinations, inoculations. 
He told the global executives that business cannot survive on its own, reminding them about the spirit of Ubuntu in South Africa. There's no way in which you are going to make it alone. In this country, they speak of something called Ubuntu. Ubuntu. A person is a person through other persons. That is the economics I've come to teach you. (laughs) The Archbishop told the Forum that when the story about the painful history of apartheid is often told, it's not an exaggeration but the truth. He told them how segregation laws even prohibited intimate relationships between black and white South Africans. Police used to climb trees to peep through the windows of bedrooms and then to rush in and feel the temperature of the sheets. Yes, I mean, you can only laugh. Uh, <laughs> but it was serious. If, if they found a white person sleeping with a black person, most of those white people committed suicide. Now, you, you go out here and you see a mixed couple pushing a pram with a baby of undeterminable... <laughs> The Archbishop still had more memories about the apartheid system. That report by Mercedes Besant. We now cross over to Tabisoluhuku for our economics news. African ports are scaling up their operations to achieve better port performance with countries like Kenya and Mozambique providing pioneering examples of port development and optimization. Africa is seeing a sharp increase in port expansion projects to increase transport infrastructure capacity. Commercial Director of the Maputo Port Development Company, Johan Puerta. In the export of mineral products. And then I think what has resulted in this sudden sort of unexpected increase in the volumes is that there's been some pressure on the capacities and mainly the capacities on the South African ports. So we have seen a movement of a lot of this cargo to, to Mozambique. And if you look at Maputo specific, because Maputo is so close and on the southern end of the Mozambican borders, it is very, very closely situated to the South African market. The South African miner, Sibanya Gold, which is one of the country's four largest gold producers, says it could cut up to 1,600 jobs after a review of its business. The company has already reduced its workforce, which includes contractors, to 38,000 from 42,000. The gold producer says it plans to consult with unions in line with the labor law and has already issued 189 notice in terms of the South African Labor Relations Act. Meanwhile, South Africa's manufacturing sector continues to shed jobs. This is according to the latest Manufacturing Circle quarterly report. Those surveyed in the report indicate that business confidence in the sector remains fragile. Amina Akram reports. Confidence in the manufacturing sector has continued to remain a challenge, with many respondents saying the sector is likely to remain fragile and weak in the long term. The manufacturing sector has also continued to shed jobs during the same period, with many respondents projecting lowering the level of employment in the third quarter of 2013. 
Majority of respondents stated that higher input costs like electricity and shortage of some raw materials were the biggest constraints to the sector. Amina Akram, SABC News, Johannesburg. Kenya's main share index has risen, lifted by Mamias Sugar, which recovered from a tumble in previous sessions after the government suspended issuance of sugar import licenses. In the foreign exchange market, the shilling is steady due to subdued uh, dollar demand from importers. The benchmark share index added 0.3% to shares in Mamias, Kenya's largest sugar crane grower and miller, jumped to 7.4% on news that the government had frozen issuing licenses to sugar imports. Importers. Mimas had lost 20% of its share price in four straight sessions to hit a four and a half low as investors sold off shares ahead of its full year results. Oil prices have risen in Asia, supported by concerns about turmoil in Egypt, Africa. After a crackdown on protesters that killed more than 600 people nationwide, investors are closely watching whether the latest unrest in Egypt will escalate and affect stability in the oil-rich and politically volatile Middle East region. New York's main contract, West Texas Intermediate for Delivery, in September was up 16 cents at $107.49 a barrel yesterday. North brand to crude of October delivery was up 20 cents at 109.80 US dollars a barrel. The US dollar trades at 995 South African Rand, 843 Botswana Pulas, 539 Zambian Guachas, 64 British Pound, 75 Euro, Platinum, $1,503.50 and Gold, $1,327.06 an ounce. Brand crude. $111.54 a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabi. So we now cross over to Tami Kluza for our economics for sports news. In your sports, Ivory Coast coach Sabri Lamucci came under fire yesterday after his side suffered a 4-1 humiliation at the hands of Mexico during an international friendly match that was played at the MetLife Stadium in New Jersey on Wednesday. Several Ivorians attributed this to the Frenchman's poor tactics and lack of experience, which they say needs to be addressed as soon as possible before it is too late. Captain Didier Drogba scored the Ivorians' only goal through a penalty, returned to the outfit after more than six months of absence, which Lamoji said was needed for the former Chelsea star to recover his blistering form. Other critics say that the coach lacks a clear strategy to reform the entire team amid the arrival of a couple of young players and that he has been unable to prove he truly controls the squad. South Africa's Bafana Bafana will face another testing match when they take on Burkina Faso in an international friendly match at the FNP Stadium tomorrow. Bafana Bafana clash against the Stallions forms part of the First Nation 
Nelson Mandela Sports and Cultural Day, a sporting activity at the FNP Stadium, which will also feature a legend match between South Africa and Italy, as well as the Springboks opening rugby championship test against Argentina. Bafana coach Gordon Igesand is optimistic that the team will rise to the occasion. The important thing is now that we go to this game against Burkina Faso with our heads up and try and get a, get, get a result. I mean, it's, uh, it's important for us to win games and keep playing, but it's also important for us to, to be able to know where we are with certain players. And, you know, you've got to sometimes use these games as an as a opportunity to, to have a look at players, you know. It's, you don't want to just continuously, continuously using the same players, the same players. You've got to start bringing in some of the players like Nomandela, like Zungu and others. While South African Minister of Sports and Recreation, Figile Mbalula, is urging the supporters to support and not to desert the team. With our national team, you will know South Africans, this is a journey. We are just down there among other nations that have actually witnessed this that we are going through. Great nations like Brazil. Brazil is playing with a totally different squad today. But they too had to go through this. If we play the number one in Africa and number two we get beaten, we will know that we are weak and there is something that we must do about ourselves. Let's stop to suffer from an illusion that we are the best. And the best are produced out of what? Out of great competition with the best. For the Springboks, there will be nothing friendly about their meeting with Argentina as they kick off their 2013 rugby championship campaign. But Captain John de Villas is already excited by the unique crowd that will watch the match at the FNP Stadium. From a Springbok rugby point of view and a Springbok captain, it's a, it's a massive honour to be involved with this game. Uh, we'd like to thank the sports minister for, uh, you know, for all the organisation, for putting up this fantastic day. Um, I think this is a day for, you know, for all South Africans, not only sports people, and um, yeah, we're looking forward to get a good victory for South Africa tomorrow. So thanks, Mr Minister. We, uh, we're really looking forward to this day tomorrow. Fantastic. And now in athletics, the poor funding of other sports other than football has had its toll on the Nigerian athletes in the World Championships in Moscow. Athletics Federation of Nigeria took athletes to the World Championships without even a day's camping. They did not have the money to organize the camp for the athletes that they brought in Moscow. President of Athletics Federation of Nigeria, Solomon Ogba, says that the current sports minister is determined and has promised to stop this shame. Finally, with tennis, Spain's Rafael Nadal cruised into the quarterfinals of the ATP Masters event in Cincinnati. This after his three-set win over Bulgaria's Grigory Dimitrov in the third round of the tournament. Nadal will face his rival Roger Federer in the quarterfinals, and he admits that matches against five-time champion Roger Federer are always special. Oh, always play against Roger is um, a special feeling. Now we have uh, a great history uh, behind us. In our confrontation, so that, that it's not another quarterfinals. It's a it's a special one because you you play against a, a very special player, and uh, our matches were very special always. But at the end, it's a quarterfinals match. It's not a final, so that's a big difference. And that's the end of our sports. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
day, capping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. UN rights chief calls for dialogue to end crisis in Egypt. Zimbabwe constitutional court to hear MDC's election petition. And South Africa's marks first anniversary of the Marikana massacre. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Bayete with Mbombela. Sweet.